Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. I'm joined today by Alona Bannister, who is an American author based in London. Um, Alona is a former immigration lawyer, and her second novel, Little Prisons, is out on June 23rd. And Alona, you are officially our first repeat guest on the podcast. That's so exciting. I'm honored. That's really exciting. It's so (laughs) great to have you back. Um, I love that we're going to be able to do this again. We've got so many other things to talk about this time. You're a second time author. you were in the process of writing this, actually, when we talked last year, when your first book, When I Ran Away, came out. Yeah. So, oh, there's so much we can dive into. But um, but first of all, let's talk about Little Prisons um, itself. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is, it's such an incredible book on for so many different reasons, for so many reasons. Um First of all, perhaps actually just give the listeners a little a little brief rundown on what it's about and then we'll dive in. <clears throat> okay. Um, so Little Prisons is about four women who live in a block of flats uh, in a gentrifying corner of London. It's a new build. They're all in these sort of sterile apartments. Um, and it's about how we don't know our neighbors at all, yet we know them incredibly well. We know intimate details of their lives that probably the people closest to them don't know. Um, We've got four women who live in the building. Uh, There is Penny. She is an agoraphobe. She never leaves her flat. Um, She struggles with mental illness. Uh, We have Carla, her next door neighbor, who uh, is in a coercive relationship. She's a single mother of two teens. Uh, We have Mabel. She is an elderly woman living on her own. She's a Jehovah's Witness. She's estranged from her family because of her faith. And we have woman. Uh, uh, we never learn woman's identity or where she's from. Uh, she works uh, as a domestic slave uh, for the owners of the building who live on the second floor. She also works in their laundrette, which is on the ground floor of the building. She is a modern slave in plain view of the public. Mm. Uh, and the book is about how these four women are all entrapped in their own little prisons, um, but how they interact, uh, how they see one another when no one else sees them and how they help each other to kind of find different ways out of uh, their circumstances. It's just, um, it's so incredible because I think that those four different kinds of imprisonment, they're so different. And yet in, in some ways, the the kind of repercussions are kind of the same for all of these women that they become incredibly socially isolated. Um, And so I, I guess I wanted to start with asking like, um, did one of them come to you first? And it's almost because it, they almost work in relation to each other um, and they play off each other. And was there somebody, was there one character that it started with and then the others built around that character? Or how did how did they begin? Um, so my initial idea was just about Penny and woman. Hmm. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, every now and again, we see the, we, you know, you see these sort of, um, pieces in the newspaper about uh, people who've been trapped, uh, usually domestic workers, trapped in someone's home. Sometimes the most egregious stories we see are 20, 30 years that someone has been trapped or in a situation they can't get out of. And they sort of blip by. Um, Mm -hmm. I always thought those stories were very interesting, particularly from an immigration lawyer's perspective, because quite often um, they were migrant workers. Um, And 
I just thought it would be so interesting to explore the life of someone in that situation, juxtaposed with uh, someone uh, like Penny, who was a very high achieving person, um, was someone who had a career, but due to her mental illness has has withdrawn from society. Uh, Two people dismissed by everyone who see each other. That was my initial idea. Mm. Um, But what happens with me with writing, I'm a very organic writer. I sort of, uh, I start off with a plan, but then these other people, I, I channel these other voices from, I don't know where, must be deep in my consciousness, and they sort of insist on being present. So Mabel, um, I had thought about a Jehovah's Witness because I was trying to think who who would interact with these people in the building. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, Jehovah's Witnesses, they come to the door sometimes. And Mabel originally was sort of a side character, but she just insisted on being present. She kind of told me what her story was um, and the same with Carla. So uh, it started with with Penny. I relate to Penny very deeply um, just with my own struggles with anxiety and claustrophobia and and other things that I have felt that that she feels in a much more extreme way. Yeah. Um, But uh, over the course of time, these women all told me that they needed to be there in the building. That's how we ended up with four of them. It's so interesting, isn't it? I actually could really relate to lots of tiny parts of each of them, Mm. you know, Um, and I know you very deliberately wrote woman as quite a universal character, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, um, But even, I think, other aspects of all four women, there are little pieces of them that I can kind of definitely relate to. and. In a way, I really wanted to ask you this question because even though, um, you know, someone like Mabel, who I absolutely adored, (laughs) even all four of them really in some ways are quite unlikable characters. Um, And I don't mean entirely, but I mean actually some of, they've all done things in their life that are quite unlikable. And even to the extent of woman who is a victim of a horrific crime of human trafficking, isn't the perfect victim. In, in many ways in, in the story, which, you know, um, I, I loved that aspect of the story. Um, but so I wanted to ask you about this idea of likability and about writing women that are really real and do things that, that are very unlikable. I mean, Penny, who's going through this really horrific um, mental health crisis over the sort of previous four years leading up to when the narrative happens, you know, that what she did in the beginning of that crisis was really quite shocking. And uh, so yeah, I wanted to ask you about like how does it feel to write to write characters knowing that that readers are maybe going to struggle with some of the decisions that they've made. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's I like to write people characters who are challenging because the, the circumstances all the women are in, we we feel great empathy for them. I hope I hope yes. that there's yeah, yeah. great empathy for them, but it's in order for something to be realistic, then we have to recognize that humans are layered. People make mistakes. People have errors of judgment. Um, I really want to, with these characters as sort of challenging the reader to say, well, how far does your compassion stretch? Can you understand why someone ends up in this situation? Can you understand why Penny has ended up here? Even if you feel horrible about what she does in the beginning, um, and I think also, you know, all of the women are, are also mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I like to write about motherhood um, 
And, but I think I, I like to write about motherhood. I like to challenge our ideas of the angry mother, uh, the imperfect mother, the mother who makes bad decisions. Does that mean she doesn't love her children? You know, we, we judge women so harshly on their mothering and their motherhood. Um, and I like to write women and mothers in particular who push us to recognize that mothers are people, yeah, have struggles, uh, they and their love for their children is what often helps them overcome their struggles, but their love for their children can also trigger yeah. traumas from their past when they were children. And, you know, I like to write women that are whole people, not just, you know, perfect mothers or the perfect uh, person with mental illness we're going to feel sad for or the perfect victim of trafficking that we're going to have compassion for. They are whole people and, and we all come with you know, things that we perhaps regret um, that put us in the situations we're in. So I think that's much more interesting than. It's so interesting. And I, I, I love, I love that about little prisons. I love it because, um, because as you say, there are moments where your compassion is challenged and you have to almost, there's a, you feel a reaction yourself going, would I behave like that in these circumstances? I've never been put in that circumstance. How would I behave? And even to the extent of, um, there's there's a huge amount of grief in the book and lots of different instances of loss, various different kinds. And each of the women react very differently to their experiences of grief and loss. And, you know, and, and that not, not very imperfectly react to their loss. You know, I'm thinking like particularly of like um, there's a bit of section of, of Mabel's story about um, about her experiences of grief, which then led to um, to her becoming a witness. And um and how vulnerable her grief made her and the kind of decisions she made because of that vulnerability. Um, it's just, um, it's such an interesting and really complex exploration of kind of grief and trauma um, in, in sort of four very different women in the same space. And, it's, I mean, first of all, hugely challenging technically to do that as well. So let's talk a little bit about some of the technical aspects of it that I think is so interesting, like... Um, like you made the decision with um with each of the backstories to kind of flip to the third person, but every time we're with a woman in with one of the women in the in the in the story, we're in her first person. So how did that also come about, and did that take quite a lot of playing around to kind of to decide to end up that way, or how was that process? Um, yeah, that's a good question too. I I looking at it now, and then specifically when we um looked at, you know, putting, making this an audio book. Um, I'm, I, I'm not sure it's the easiest or most efficient way to write a story. And I'm not sure that I would uh, recommend it. Um, it's quite hard to voice this book because, because, of, challenging. Yeah. Uh, because of all the flipping around. And I think it may also sort of challenge the reader um, you do have to pay attention to who is speaking and when and uh, what information you're being given and how. Um, but uh, what, what came about with doing the women's backstory, so there's just four different backstories that are in the third person. Um, as I was writing the women and their voices were coming to me and I was giving their stories, I realized that they all, they each needed an explanation for how we got here, how did mm -hmm. we get to this place? And so I liked the idea of having just this omnis omniscient sort of being that was looking at the building from the outside 
that could just give us that information that was missing. Mm. But we're reading their, you know, we're reading the stories, we're in their lives, and you're wondering to yourself, like, how on earth did this woman become this way? Mm. I liked the idea of just being pulled out for a minute, being pulled out of the intensity, come out of the building, get out of the hallway or wherever you're finding yourself, and uh, just take a step back. Um, I thought that doing it that way broke up some of the intensity of the story. Uh, Cause I think it needs that. And it takes you out of the book's been described as claustrophobic a few times. Um, so I think that being pulled out and being put into a different time and place kind of helps break up. Um, in retrospect though, it's, is really hard to, to do that. And I, I confused myself quite a few times in my drafts. So who was speaking and what, which person and what <laughs> was doing it, not the most efficient, but um but I think it works because now it gives you a break from being in their flats with them. Yeah, that's such a good way of describing it because actually, and I think it also, that probably also really nicely describes why I enjoyed the backstory so much because I think it's that, it's that kind of pulling back and having a moment to kind of take it all in um, because I did really enjoy the backstories enormously. I really loved those sections. And I think as well that I loved the introduction as well, as you're saying, kind of um, the view of the building and it does really feel like very cinematic, you know, we're kind of we're taking in the bigger picture and then we're coming a little bit closer and we're moving around the building and we're starting to understand and we see it from a few different perspectives. In that initial introduction, we get a gorgeous kind of idea of the layout, which really helps the reader, you know, as things, as the story moves on of like how everybody fits together. Um, I just thought that was so clever, but also, you know, an omniscient narrator is not, not a voice you hear very often in contemporary literature actually. And, I loved that pulling back. I really, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really successful. And like you say, the claustrophobia that's created by some of the intensity of these women's stories when you're right in their head with them and being in somebody's head who's quite mentally unwell is not always the most easiest place to be for long periods of time, um, even when you're really enjoying it. Um, so, yeah, that breakdown, it really... Um, I really enjoyed those sort of pauses from the intensity. Um, but I, but I also wanted to talk particularly about women's because you use a few different devices in, in women's uh, narrative, which I thought was so interesting and really clever. And, and for me as a reader, just it, it really stretched how I see things, really, really stretched. And actually, I'm just going to read a tiny section from her backstory, I hope you don't mind, just so the, re- so the listeners can understand what we're talking yeah. about because you use almost... Um, when you're giving the backstory, you use kind of multiple options Mm -hmm. to kind of be able to, you know, you could insert something here essentially for her story. So I'm just going to read a tiny little bit so that, um, so that people understand what we're, what we're discussing. So man, we're talking about man now, her husband. So um, man died in the bombing slash in the natural disaster slash in jail, wrongfully convicted and poorly treated two years after he and woman were married in home country, men die young and violently. Men die young and violently in America and Europe also at the hands of the government slash at the hands of the gangs slash at the hands of terrorists slash at the hands of police. It's it's so it's so interesting what that effect, the effect on the reader is on the experience of reading the book when you could almost insert anything here. Um, when when did that, when did you know that that was something that you wanted to use for women? Um, well, from my research into uh, women who are trafficked specifically as domestic workers, domestic slaves, 
um, I, I struggled with how to identify her and how to make her real to the reader because the countries that women in her position come from that to, when they come to the UK are um, the, the biggest source countries are Albania, Vietnam, and Nigeria. Now these are three radically different countries, cultures, languages. Um, and, and in order, to, I didn't want to choose one um, because I didn't want one, I didn't want to stereotype the country that she was from. I didn't want to stereotype the people who were her traffickers either. Um, and I didn't want to assign an accent to her. Um, I wanted to leave it to the reader to think, uh, who is it that you picture when you picture a woman in her position? Do you see a woman of color? Do you see a white woman? Do you see an old woman? Do you see a young woman? Um, who is it that you think of when you think of a domestic worker in this situation? What springs to mind? Why? Why is that the person you think of? Why is that the country you think they're from? What about your own experience makes you feel that 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 this must be who she is? Um, I think that that's important for us because when we talk about migration, when we talk about refugees, when we talk about people who are trafficked, we tend to see, you know, a faceless monolith. Mm. Um, or we do the opposite thing and we think of one specific group of people. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to challenge that conversation. Um, it's also though, uh, another reason for doing it this way was because um, I wanted to make woman a, um, I, I, I wanted us to understand, you know, understand that this is a, a problem that is faced by many, many, many people around the world. I wanted to express the reasons for her migrating um, that could come from any country in the world. Um, it also speaks to how when people in her position get here, they are invisible. We don't see them um, or we assume them to be from a particular place. Uh, so, for example, in the book, when other characters talk about her, they describe her differently. Every I know. Time. I loved that. I love that. That was, that was so fascinating. You know, one person describes dark skin, another person describes Asian, another person yeah. sort of assumes that um, she's Turkish, attempts to talk to her in, in Turkish, um, and that chops and changes throughout the, the narrative. And it was so fascinating to me that that effect on me as a reader and my assumptions are constantly being challenged about who is who is this invisible yeah. woman who's who's um in, invisible yet completely visible at the same time you know she's not locked behind a closed door all the time no. she is visible to other people on the street in the laundromat in the building but we don't but we don't see her we don't yeah. see people in her position. We don't look at them. Maybe we see them, but we don't look at them. Mm. Um, and so that's why I, I kind of assigned this universality to her. Um, and I also thought it was really important that when she speaks, um, her her speech is her speech is actually quite formal um, because I didn't. I want also for us to understand how layered she is, her intelligence. Mm. Her, her ability to communicate, because I think quite often we do that with, with migrants as well. We assume that they aren't able to express themselves. Mm. Um, so I thought it was really important that her voice is very quite formal and quite strong. Um, she also, unlike the other characters, she's addressing somebody when she speaks as well. Um, her narrative's all addressed 
in her mind, but she's addressing it to her mother. Um, she's speaking to someone. She is completely and utterly isolated, apart from these small children she's charged with looking after. Um, but she is addressing, so it's almost, it's almost in the second person, really, almost. But um, what, what was behind that decision? Because like, the other three characters are entirely in the first person. And, yeah, I was, I was curious about the decision of, is it because she's so isolated you wanted to almost give her somebody, even if it is just somebody in her mind? Yes, because um, I think her talking to her mother um, in her mind, narrating her life, explaining it to her mother, um, was the was the only way to get her story out um, because there was no, you know, it, she could have just been talking to us. But I think the point is that a woman in her position wouldn't be talking to us. Mm -hmm. um, if we walked into the laundrette and she was serving us, she wouldn't tell us her story yeah, um, because she's so afraid and she's so isolated. Mm -hmm. um, so she, she she's speaking to her mother. That idea, though, also came from, you know, my uh, family, my um, grandparents and parents were refugees from Ukraine in the Second World War. And there was a lot that I remember as a child. Uh, the separation of family mm -hmm. who they didn't see for decades. Uh, there were a lot of phone calls. There was a lot of letter writing. There was a lot of trying to explain the life in America yeah. in an inexplicable way. Cause you know, we didn't have internet, we didn't have video calling. So the, the relatives over there couldn't see, yeah. um, but there was a lot of expressing what your life was in this new country. Uh, and I just always thought that was a really interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it worked really beautifully and I loved that it kind of there's so much about woman that marks her out separately to the other three women um but that particularly brings it her isolation it almost makes it it makes her isolation so much more acute that she's speaking to somebody specifically in a way um but I also wanted to just um to just as well and another couple of things that you do on the page physically on the page you know um home country which is what you call where she comes from and neighboring country which um, is occasionally where she comes across someone from the same region. Um, and the, the kind of the use of those terms and the capitalization of those terms as well, and the capitalization of woman. Um, and then at one point, I think um, it's one point in the story, I don't know if it's in her backstory, I think it is, where you refer to women with a capital W um, when you're referring to other, other women in the same position. Um, it's, it's, it seems like such a tiny thing in a way that um, to kind of use those very small kind of um, devices. But the impact actually on the page is really, really significant. Um, and again, I guess, is this something that happened organically or um, was it something you realised when you were kind of, you know, looking at drafts on the page and realising that actually there's a way that you could physically get some of that across without actually saying anything? Um, it did happen organically. It just kind of appeared that way. But some of the other things that I do, like um, like the like from the bit that you read with the slashes, um, or also listing out um, yeah, there's some lists, yeah, or some lists, because uh, sometimes I feel like the words to explain the situation, you could either use a ton of words, or you could you can do something visually on the page, yeah. yeah. And I think sometimes, rarely, it's it's not all the time, but I think sometimes um, you can get something across visually that you can't with words. Yeah. Um, so I like playing with that. I like experimenting with it. You can't do it all the time because it can get gimmicky, but um, 
I feel like that's also something that breaks up the page for the reader. It breaks up the experience. It makes you pay attention a little bit. Um, yeah. Because I, I recognize that um, you know, some, some parts of this book are hard. So making it interesting yeah. um, visually is also it's, something I thought about. Yeah, there's a book that I read last year, True Story by Kate Reed Petty, which is, I'd say, similarly complex story. It's, it's basically four or five books almost in one. It's all around one incident of sexual assault in high school, and it's all told from different perspectives, but each section is actually written in a different genre as well. Um, I know. <laughs> but she does a few, she uses a few visual cues as well and one that I absolutely adored which was I thought was so powerful because it's so subconscious and it's only because I was really doing a very close reading of it that I really picked it apart that I could see that the effect on me as a reader I didn't need to pick it apart to have the effect on me as a reader at one point in one of the sections um one of the the sections which is is from a male bystander perspective whenever the the whenever dialogue is happening and, and it's on the man's side, it's denoted in italics. And as soon as someone's confrontational for him and is on is kind of challenging him, it turns into regular dialogue with speech marks. And it's so tiny, but it's so powerful on the page to have this idea of like, of kind of being, um, you know, uh, being in a position of, of being in the kind of dominant kind of um, party who's being listened to, being understood, you know, to occasionally be confronted and to be challenged okay. and how visually that that thing denoted differently visually on the page has such a powerful impact without even consciously realising it as a reader that you can sort of see hostility instantly on the page. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I love, I love um, very subtle uses of visual stuff within books. It's so interesting. And I don't think it's funny. It's, I don't think it's something we talk about particularly when we talk about writing necessarily. Um, no, and I think too, like it's nice to, it's nice just creatively to find other ways to express with words because you spend so much time with these thousands and thousands of words staring at them up on the page. It's nice to sometimes have something else that you can do with them um, because you can get lost in sort of the, the pages and pages and pages. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to talk about the ending, obviously, because um, that would be just like awful <laughs> to, to read it. Because you must go read it. But the ending is really incredibly interesting and powerful, um, and it was not what I was expecting, actually, in terms of the way the devices you use towards the end. Um, God, sorry to be so elusive, listeners, but it's I really can't explain it without ruining it. But um, but again, in a, in a way that you've done in, in multiple ways, you use a device in which to challenge the reader to really think about um, some of the situations in the book and how we feel about some of the situations in the book. Um, yeah, it, it was just incredibly powerful. Um, Thank you. But so let's talk a bit now about the fact that this is your second book. And I imagine... <laughs> Well, I know from having a conversation with you, this has been quite a different experience. So, first of all, take me back to when you sold When I Ran Away, because um, because that was a two book deal, and so Little Prisons became part of that deal, didn't didn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I had the idea for Little Prisons in my head. I didn't have anything about it worked out uh, when we when we and I also when I you know 
when I got an agent, when I entered publishing, when I started writing, I didn't know anything about the business. I didn't know how things work. I didn't know what expectations were at meetings when you go to see an editor. I didn't know these things. Um, so uh, sort of the week before we went to meet uh, my editor to talk about when I ran away, you know, to have that initial meeting, are they going to buy it? My agent said, uh, and by the way, have your, uh, your idea for your second book ready. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, of course, you know, sure. Um, <laughs> um, luckily, you know, we, we didn't have an extended discussion about it, but um, anyone, ju just any writers out there, you know, when you go into this meeting, definitely have your second idea prepared, be able to talk about it. No one's expecting to see, you know, a full outline and synopsis, but they do want to know that you have something in you, that if they invest in you, that you are going to be able to produce it and that you have ideas happening. Um, you know, I sort of felt like, my God, I just wrote that one. Like, isn't that enough? No. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, so, and also that subject to change. So, so at that stage, little prisons was just penny and woman. Mm. And I was talking about two women who, who, uh, you know, find each other in the building and how they were going to help one another, um, get out. That was the initial idea. Um, so that's what I talked about. Uh, then of course, over time, when it was time to write it, that developed and, and that was okay that that developed. So that's important to know too. I think um, when you're walking into that kind of meeting, you want to have a really good idea. Um, but, but everyone knows that once you start writing. Um, yeah. So it's a, the nugget was there, the essence of yeah. it, about what um, ideas that you wanted to explore and some things that you wanted to say. Yeah. So that was so interesting. So when you signed the contract for when I ran away, it was for, um, for when I ran away, plus second book uh, of this potential idea of uh, women in these kind of prisons, that are, um, different kinds of prisons. And um, so did you get a date at that point for when they would expect a full draft? Gosh, I can't remember if it was then uh, when, I can't remember if it was at that point or if it was after, I think it must have been after I released uh, when I ran away that then we agreed the dates. The dates, yeah. I can't quite remember, yeah. Yeah, and so you um, were writing Little Prisons. When were you writing it? So I started writing it in 2019. Um, I needed to get going on it because by then I had the date, so I knew that it was going to be due in 2020. And, of course, well, we all know what happened in 2020. So, hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and then I, I ended up asking for a bit of an extension just for the extenuating circumstances. So I extended that by three months and I had it done by last January. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I didn't, you know, the, the contract was there. Um, I knew I had to write this book. Um, I, I, of course, none of us could foresee what work became in 2020 um what home life will be uh any and all ways that I used to write you know it all went out the window once I was taking care of my family at home and homeschooling two kids uh so it was a it was an it was a, it was a difficult experience a really challenging one as a writer to learn to write um 
you know, not in the six hours when the children are at school, but to have to fit it in, in between, you know, their lesson on when they're watching the screen and I have 20 minutes before they're going to want lunch. And I have an idea in my head. I need to get it down on paper. Um, I became a weekend writer. Mm. So my husband would, I, I couldn't write every day. It wasn't possible. So my husband would uh, take the kids, he'd be in charge and I would get, you know, three or four hours done. Um, but it was, it was exhausting. Uh, it was like, you know, it was writing in really difficult circumstances, but I think part of why the book feels claustrophobic is because I was, you know, all of us, we were locked in our houses. And it's interesting because of the topic about you'd already chosen before you started about, you know, literal kind of prisons and, and it's interesting, you did end up making the decision to insert a bit of 2020 because the book is is set at the very beginning of 2020 before Before lockdown but then it just sort of tips at the end just into the the very beginning of it and to me it's it's so fascinating that this was the book you were writing anyway the topic that you were already writing about social isolation and uh and here you were having to experience it in quite an extreme way yourself when you were writing it and it's interesting I wonder if if it would be a, it might've been a very different book potentially if you had written it literally any other point in time. Yeah, literally. Because what happens is 2019, I had, I had a few thousand words written and I had all these ideas about things that Penny did because, oh, isn't it so bizarre? We used to think that people like Penny, people with agoraphobia who are homebound, who can't leave their homes or have such extreme social anxiety, they can't go out. Uh, We used to think that they were, you know, that's an anomaly. How bizarre, what a crazy way to live. So I had her doing things like talking to herself in the mirror. And I had a whole scenario about how she has her groceries delivered and, and not, and not touching the delivery person. And I had all these things that she wore a mask all the time. I had all these things that she did. (laughs) Suddenly, you know, there were viral YouTube videos everywhere of all these things happening. Like I remember distinctly watching a man in Italy in his bathroom, have a cocktail party with himself and a three-way mirror. Um, And it was like, uh, I recognize that. (laughs) It was very funny, but I suddenly thought, oh my God, like Penny is actually not that, she's not that extreme anymore. All of us are Penny now. All of us are living her life. So what can I do? How do I, I was actually really panicked because I was like, how do I make her interesting still? Um, Mm. Now, one of the things that I think has happened is that we all, because of what we lived through, have a lot more compassion for people like me. We all can relate much more to people who have extreme anxiety. And I think what ended up happening by introducing the pandemic, just a, just a tiny bit of it. Yeah, uh, just, just right at the end. Yeah, it's just sort of starting to happen. You no, know, it's there. Um, I think it helps us to understand her. And another thing that was really interesting about the pandemic is that um, there, there were a lot of people who, toward the end, and even still now, are still having those difficulties. Yeah. Um, difficulties with leaving home, difficulties yeah. being in public, still feeling a lot of social anxiety. You know, we're not talking about it very much, but it is very present. Definitely. And, you know, as someone someone raising an autistic child, mm-hmm. you know, that has been a bit, reintegration has been a big issue for us yeah. because of the um, lack of practice mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of going anywhere other than like two or three same repetitive places it it took us the whole of 2021 the whole of it to kind of be able to go beyond the kind of 
the school, the playground, the shop. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a big, it's a big long process. And I'm sure there are so many people now still in the middle of 2022, a year now after lockdown's finished for us, that is still really struggling with those things. And it's so interesting, isn't it? This idea of, um, of how as readers, like our perception and compassion and um, can change, you know, quite drastically towards a character like that. Um, and actually, you know, I think one of the lovely things is that I love that how in a way that, you know, it was easier for her when, when, the, when the lockdown comes, you know, that, that you know, her behaviour is normalised. And, you know, it's so, it's almost so lovely because she's, you know, you, you really adore her, right? You know, you adore all four of the women. And this idea that there is some tiny little nugget of good <laughs> from, from this horrible experience of pandemic that, like, that perhaps there are some people for whom it was a bit of a relief in a way. Yes, and, and I read articles about that because I was really interested in that, in researching her. And there were some studies that were done where they were reporting that people who were living with high anxiety levels, people who yeah. really struggled with it, they felt they, they, it eased. Social anxiety really eased. Well, so apparently the same thing happened in World War II during the Blitz. Yes. Which I find just completely incredible. Just like yeah. apparently acute mental illness was reduced yeah. in the Blitz. Mild, yeah. I think, mild anxiety rapidly. Yeah way up <laughs> the people who didn't usually yeah. experience it but um but apparently severe mental illness was, yeah. was really um really changed and, yeah um, I read accounts of people in world war ii who were known agoraphobes in their villages and their communities but when the war started and it was time to step up to the plate they were the ones they they came forward and they like committed these incredible feats of heroism um, and I think it's to do with, you know, if you're vibrating at a frequency up here mm-hmm. and no one is ever up there with you. Um, and then suddenly the whole world joins Coming up to meet you. Yeah. And suddenly everyone understands your anxiety level. Um, I mean, I certainly felt that a bit. I, I, I think uh, it, it can really change things. And there are a lot, there's a lot of documented proof about people who, um, in times of war and times of struggle. And, and we see Penny do it a little bit in the book too, that, that uh, when it's time to step up, they're able to, because they're yeah. always in the fight or fight flight place. Yes. So yeah. when it's time to use it, they can. Which is so interesting, isn't it? Because it really speaks to what some evolutionary psychologists believe, which is that there is a very specific function for high levels of anxiety and yeah. some of these kind of, um, you know, what we call mental illnesses that actually that they serve a quite a specific evolutionary function for humans yeah. um, and that we need our canaries and that these people yeah. are often our canaries. Yeah. 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 Which is really fascinating. Really fascinating. Um, so the book is out very, very soon. Um, it's got a great cover. Oh, a gorgeous the um, cat. And they've, um, they've re-released, the, they've done the paperback as well for when I ran away to match yes. this one as well, haven't they? I love so that. Cool. So I love brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it was just, so wonderful to talk to you about this um there's so much more we could say because obviously uh you know book three is is underway now and um but you know we'll have to have you back again you're gonna have to be our permanent repeat guest every year to talk about a book (laughs) (laughs) um it was so lovely to talk to you thank you so much honey thank you this is so nice I love talking to you thank you thank you so much 
You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write, where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow. And please leave a review. It really helps others to find the podcast.